Okay, encourage you to turn to Roman, Romans, we're just to Romans. Let's turn to Acts chapter 9. You may remember a few weeks ago when we examined Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin that a man named Saul held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen, and we're going to read more about him in today's reading. Let's start with the first nine verses of Acts chapter 9. Would you stand as we read God's word together? Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Arise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Drink. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand these words and more that we read from Acts chapter 9. Encourage us, I pray, by your word. Exhort us to change where it is appropriate to convict us of sin. And Lord, we pray that you would illuminate and strengthen us by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I don't know if you caught the fact that Saul went to the high priest, but one didn't simply just go to the high priest as today. One doesn't just simply go to the president or a U.S. senator. Saul had to have been an important man with access to the highest circles. We know from later descriptions he was born in Tarsus to a family that had Roman citizenship, and his father was a Pharisee, just as he, Saul, was a Pharisee. We also learn that he studied under Gamaliel, and all of those things suggest that Saul came from a likely wealthy and influential family. Saul himself had apparently achieved a reputation among Jerusalem's leaders that was significant enough to be able to request an endorsement, papers to carry out special tasks for the high priest. And a contributing factor to Saul's appointment may have been the fact that he was, as as verse 1 details, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And that verb here means... To breathe in, and if you consider how we breathe in air to survive and to thrive, Luke may be saying that Saul was so consumed and passionate about persecuting Christians that he breathed in, in fact, threats and murder, almost as if those were the things that sustained and nourished him. Later in Acts 26, Saul told the leader Agrippa, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, After receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I 
punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. In a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And so what we see here, raging fury, breathing in threats and murder. This was a man whose mission was to exterminate every Christian from the face of the earth. And Luke tells us that as Saul approached Damascus on this important assignment, a light from heaven shone around him. Again, in other accounts, like here in Acts 26, Paul later told the church, it helps us understand the details where he says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And we know midday was about 12 noon when the sun's directly overhead. And so you can imagine walking along and suddenly having a spotlight brighter than the sun shining upon you and probably not just shining like some dimmer switch was gradually turned to bright, but rather the Greek word here refers to a flash, like a flash of lightning. And I envision Saul as walking along and suddenly having a bright lightning flash in his face, obviously bright enough and intense enough to blind him temporarily. And when it says that Saul fell to the ground, I imagine him falling to the ground because he stumbled back in shock. I also think that he stayed there because that's the appropriate position to be in, to be prostrate and worship. He knew this was not a common occurrence. This was the intervention of the divine, and that's when he heard his voice being called out, Saul, Saul. Who are you, Lord? natural question to ask and the answer he receives is the last thing he would have ever thought to hear I am Jesus whom you are persecuting oops Saul's life changed in an instant didn't it the very one whose influence and name Saul was trying to eradicate was actually the Lord and to make matters worse Saul was temporarily blinded and remained that way for three days you might ask, what were, those, what were those three days like? Well, they had to be soul-searching days. Your entire world is turned upside down. Verse 9 shares that for three days he didn't eat or drink, and that was the common cultural response of a devout Jew when there was a period of mourning and repentance. So totally appropriate for Saul to mourn his sin, to repent from his persecution of Christ and the members of the way, which, by the way, was the first known name for the Christian church. And so we read a little further. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Not yes, Lord. Right? Almost like a Moses answer, Lord, I've heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here... 
Here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Maybe you focus on that, but it, and it's a very good thing for us to look at Ananias' hesitant response to see the reputation Saul had. But there was a detail that struck out to me, and to me it's funny sometimes the, the details we actually have recorded for us in Scripture. We're told about a street called Straight. And if you're actually going to go out of your way to name a street straight, it must be a rare thing to be straight, Right? You might think, were most streets in the ancient world straight? And the answer is no. But this street was, and it actually still exists today. In modern Damascus, it's the main east-west Roman road that went through the heart of Damascus. It was a wide street. It was colonnaded. It was more than a mile long. You could actually see all the way down its length. It was a notable street called Straight. You might even think of it as Damascus's main street. And this is where Saul was to be found, staying in the house of a man named Judas, likely the contact he had originally been given to be the headquarters for him, where he would be persecuting the local Christians. And I find it ironic that instead he's praying in Judas's house, right, to the risen Christ. And we look at the next verse closely. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And that statement reminds me of one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, which says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, include Saul, In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Despite Saul's breathing in of anger and threats and murder, yet God had planned and purposed that he should be holy and blameless in God before the foundation of the world. Acts 9 and the story of Saul inspired C.S. Lewis to once write, I did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms as Saul. The prodigal son at least walked home on his two feet but who cannot adore the Lord who will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and struggling and resentful and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. The word compel has been so abused, Lewis says, by wicked men that we shudder at hearing it, but properly understood, it plums the depths of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men And his compulsion is our liberation. What a great, great words. In fact, that last line is one of the favorites by another commentator, R. Kent Hughes, who writes, "That, that final line, that's my favorite. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. He goes on to say, the inner workings of God's preparatory grace 
touch our lives in ways we are sometimes not even aware of. Appropriate words spoken here and there, pressures or lack of pressures, joys, sorrows, subtle workings orchestrated by the Lord who seeks us. Finally, he ends, our, our vistas are opened and we see, we see. And I think what they're saying, Lewis and Hughes are saying is that God brings us to the end of ourselves and we have this joy of being like Saul of Tarsus, the prize of God's pursuit. We are God's chosen instruments. And here is Saul, chosen for this task, appointed for it before he was ever born, before he ever persecuted Stephen or other Christians, all with the purpose that this moment he would be commissioned to proclaim the gospel to the Gentile nations. But don't miss how Jesus describes this privilege. You can see it in verse 16. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Is Jesus being vindictive here? Not at all, but, the, but it is a paradox, isn't it? of the Christian life, that when we are willing to die to ourselves, even in physical ways, only then do we find true life. In the suffering that he would experience, Saul would later write about how this brought about great joy, not in the suffering for the sake of suffering itself, but in suffering to grow the kingdom by bringing in People for the Lord. So suffer for Jesus? Absolutely. There is no greater privilege. And as we move on to verses 19 through 22, and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So having realized that he was wrong, having been confronted by the risen Christ, blinded, now healed with excitement, redirected zeal, he begins to prove to all that are in Damascus, that Jesus is the Christ. Has that point ever struck you? Here's a man who was educated in the scriptures. His knowledge did not change overnight. It's not as if he spent those three days reading a Braille text because he was blind, right? It's not as if he spent three days reading a systematic theology text and understanding where he had been wrong. No, he's not there with Burkhoff. The only thing that really changed was that the Holy Spirit changed his heart and made understandable what he already knew. It's an illustration of what we read in Ephesians 1.17 and following. Look at what Paul tells the Ephesians. May the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What's happening to Saul? His spiritual eyes have been closed. He knew the scriptures, but he knew only the words. He did not understand them with wisdom or spiritual discernment because that comes from the Holy Spirit. And he's a great reminder that you can have all kinds of knowledge, but if your ears are closed, if your eyes are closed to the truth of God, it doesn't matter what book knowledge you possess. And so like a spiritual light bulb turning on, suddenly the scriptures that Saul had known since a child and then studied under Gamaliel, they suddenly become clear. They pointed to Jesus as the Son of God. And yet Saul's impressive abilities and background, even combined with a dramatic experience, they didn't qualify him for ministry. God still had some work to do to get him ready for what lay ahead. And this is a point that I think we can apply specifically to ourselves this morning. How does God typically prepare his people for ministry in the kingdom? How does he prepare Paul? Well, the first step is found between verses 22 and 23. And I say between because in Galatians 1.15, which covers the same period as Acts 9, Paul tells us that when he that he went to Arabia, then back to Damascus all over a period of three years before he went up to Jerusalem. This is what we read. But when he had sent, sent me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. That's the incident that we first read about in Acts chapter 9, the early verses. I didn't immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those apostles before me, which would be the natural place to go to receive a commission. But I went away into Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to, re, to visit Cephas, it's Peter, and remain with him 15 days. It might suggest that the first step in, in God's Grooming and preparing you for a ministry of any kind is often a period of growth. You may not have a lightning flash, God speaking to you type of testimony like Saul, but if you're like most new converts, including Saul, in your excitement as a believer in Jesus, you want to immediately change the world. And the truth is that you should be sharing the gospel, even like Saul. From the very beginning of your changed life in Christ. But Saul spends three years and more in relative obscurity before going up to Jerusalem and receiving his commission. But the usual approach, isn't it, in the church today, we, and again, I like as a commentator says, we, we typically promote a famous convert. 
a popular sports hero, an actor, successful businessman. We don't typically expect them to be sent off for in-depth spiritual grounding because celebrity status somehow equates to maturity. But in 1 Timothy 3.6, Paul warns about promoting new believers to positions of responsibility and authority. He says that a person must not be a novice. Lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. And of course, I'm, you can imagine, promote Saul, the headline, Saul, Christian killer, prominent Jewish leader, embraces Christ, come hear his testimony. But God's plan for him was preparation. And so we don't, we don't even know about those three years. They're shrouded in, in mystery. We don't know how they were split up even between Arabia and Damascus. Arabia is this desert area to the east and, and south of Damascus itself, which is in modern Syria. We don't know what he did. We don't know what he learned. We simply know that it was a three-year period. Potentially, he spent most of that in Damascus. We simply know that he went out to Arabia, came back to Damascus, and at some point, three years, we pick up in the next verses. But by that time, he had learned more fully who Jesus was and who he Saul was. And whenever we truly come to know God through Christ, we come to this greater knowledge of ourselves. And that's, the, that's why Paul's telling Timothy, don't don't promote a novice because there's a temptation to pride. Well, what's the opposite of pride? It's humility that comes from an experience in a maturity and a growth in Christ when you realize, you know what? I am something because of what Christ has done through me and with me. Even as Paul would say in Philippians 3, 5, yes, course, if you want to talk about earthly resumes, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal. We've already seen, right? Passion enough, zealous enough to be appointed by the high priest to be a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but these things, as Paul said, he counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, counting everything as loss because what was worth more? The knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's even after this experience that Saul changes his name to Paulos. You know what Paulos means? It means small. Small. So he takes the great learning and pedigree of a soul. You crush it under the truth of who you are and who God is, and as a result, you become small. That's the type of person that God wants in a position of leadership and authority and commissioning out to be an apostle to the Gentile nations. That's when he suddenly becomes usable in an instrument, sharpened fine-tuned. And if he's made ready through three years of preparation, then the disciples became the apostles after three years of time with Jesus. Should we be surprised if God has us spend time growing in the understanding of his word before he sends us 
the ministry opportunities that we hope for? God may not ask you necessarily to spend three years, but don't devalue the time that he wants you to spend marinating in the scriptures. Moses spent 40 years learning to think he was someone, and then he spent another 40 years unlearning that assumption and realizing who he really was. And so God often has us spend that time growing a faith before he brings us opportunities. And when he does, what often happens next is what Paul experiences as a dose of reality. Look at verses 23 through 25. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So after three years, it, it seems apparent that he has become comfortable in articulating, proclaiming the gospel. He even has some that are being discipled underneath him. He's bold, he's energetic, but he's not met with ecstatic amazement. Conversions, the, the city of Damascus doesn't fall before him and you know, appoint a new church. Instead, he faces resistance. In fact, the Jews are so opposed to his speaking that they plot with the Arab governor to arrest him. That's what we learn from 2 Corinthians 11. At Damascus, Paul writes, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So he only escapes because someone in the Damascus body of believers had a home on the city wall and let's pull down the walls in a basket in the middle of the night. So children, can you imagine that? Imagine being let down in a basket, you know, by rope, down the outside of the wall. Maybe it sounds adventurous. Maybe to some of you it sounds humiliating. What do you think Paul thought of that? Well, he later describes that whole time moment of being let down in a basket as a time of weakness. And commenting it there in verse 30 of 2 Corinthians 11, he says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And of all the things that he chooses that he could have mentioned regarding weakness, because by that time he had a lot of examples, right? He could have talked about the time he was stoned with rocks and left for dead. That was an embarrassing, humiliating, maybe weak moment. Or the time when he was called to account by the Jerusalem council, kind of put before everyone and, and embarrassed, if you will. What's going on? But he doesn't choose any of those incidents. What does he choose? He chooses the Damascus incident of being let down a wall in a basket. So Paul's ministry ends in Damascus before he even gets started. There's no church established there like Galatia or Philippi or Colossae, Corinth, Ephesus. Damascus was not ripe for revival, just waiting for him, like I said. Instead, he escapes. It's an embarrassing moment. And there will be times that you will share the gospel. And it will not only fall upon deaf ears, but it will be met with resistance. You may even be persecuted for sharing the truth, but I'm reminded of what 2 Corinthians 4, 
7 says we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So when you failed in your attempt to convince people of the truth, were you humiliated by their response? Were you relying on your own strength? What if you had succeeded? Would you have been tempted to take the glory for your ideas, your ability to be convincing, your work? One commentator says, God ruthlessly perfects those whom he royally elects. So God ruthlessly perfects those whom he royally elects. That is true. He continues, without exception, our humiliating failures become marvelous preparation for greater service if we allow God to use them in that way. And so, friends, God wants you to know that the treasure that you carry is in a jar of clay. You are that jar. Like a clay pot that holds water, and sometimes it's broken, cracked, under trial, but... But just like a clay pot that holds water that seeps out when it is cracked or is broken, so when you suffer well, when you handle that humiliating experience with grace, you allow the treasure of God's truth to seep out of you. Now, so far we've talked about how God will sometimes require that you spend time often in obscurity, growing deeper in his word before he sends you into action. And then we talked about how some of your first lessons may be met with a dose of reality. Where God reminds you that you must depend upon him fully and next you must rely not on the abiding strength of God. Remembering, friends, true success is obedience. Even if nobody hears and nobody listens, true success is obedience. But remembering also that you need the care and support of other believers. Absolutely vital. Verse 26 reads, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. That might have been another blow of discouragement for Saul to seek safety and encouragement with the believers at Jerusalem. I don't know, you know, you don't want to speculate too much, but I wonder if having been prepared for three years and then taking that journey up to Jerusalem, going to that very place, I mean, think about the cycle being closed, right? You left Jerusalem with a commission to go persecute the Christians. You had that dramatic experience. You now follow the true Lord. Spend three years preparation. Now you're coming back to this place that you called home, and yet it had to seem strange at that moment, right? Because Jerusalem represents the pinnacle of all that is Judaism. And it's not that Saul's converted to a new religion. We have to be careful. When we call Saul's experience a conversion, He's not converted away from Judaism in a sense. He's, he's converted really back to what Judaism is, which is a worship of the, of the God of the Old Testament. It's just Judaism in Jesus' time had come to perversion, right? 
Think of it like the Reformation. So here's Saul returning to his roots, returning to the pinnacle of Judaism in his time, but with this new understanding, this, this new zeal, this new excitement. Just wait till I share with the disciples what's happened to me. They are going to be so amazed. I will need to quickly explain to them about what Stephen and those types of things. But they will be quickly amazed about what God is doing in my life. But instead, they are afraid of him. But thankfully, Barnabas saves the day. This is the second time we've seen Barnabas in our study of Acts. We saw him earlier. Here in verse 27, it says, Barnabas took him and brought him to the disciple apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So again, Barnabas, and we'll, we'll see him again later in this book, convinced of, of Paul's sincerity, supports him. It was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. The Greek implies that Barnabas took him by the hand and, and led him among the apostles, introducing him to each one, explaining the story, marveling with them as they maybe in an initial doubt but become convinced that Wow, isn't our God amazing that he would take someone like this man and use him for his purposes? And the result of this care, according to Galatians 1, 18, is that Paul got to know James, the Lord's brother, spent two weeks at Peter's place. And we can think of what encouragement came as a result of that. But I want us to take from this in, in an application of this into our own lives that we are often ourselves prepared for effective service by the counsel and the care of other believers. There is a role that the body of Christ provides in your life for you to be effective in your ministry, whatever it may be. How important is a person like Barnabas who encourages and confirms another's gifts, reconciles believers with believers? takes risks for Christ in relationships and promotes other people. We need all of these individuals, a Barnabas here, a James here, a Peter here, a Paul here. And then our final verses in 28 through 30 tell us how his, Paul's ministry is relaunched. But once again, not smooth sailing. There's that reality again. He went out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed with the Hellenists. Remember, the Hellenists are the ones that come out of the Western, you know, Greek, Greekanized, if you will, Hellenized uh, countries where the Jews were also settled, Egypt and other places. Many of them had come into Jerusalem. They carried with them a lot of Greek philosophical ideas. But here is Paul disputing against them. And they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and then sent him off to Tarsus. We don't hear from him again for eight to ten years. Until Barnabas comes to Tarsus to ask him to help him with 
establishing a work at Antioch. So now when we're talking about closing a cycle, well, this is, this is really the cycle closed, right? Because Saul was born in Tarsus. So he's, he's gone out, he's been educated, serving in, in the biggest place, the Mecca of Judaism, which would be Jerusalem, and now being sent back to Tarsus and just being there for eight to ten years. Pretty small, isolated village. And yet it is here that is prepared for even more of the work that would happen to come. Is God preparing you for a work that he has appointed you for before the foundation of the world? Do you identify with any of the experiences that Paul had? Long time of preparation with few, if any, significant opportunities, resistance when you did share the gospel. If so, I want to challenge you, and I've been closing this morning, to think about a few reasons why God does this. First, why would you think that God would have you first grow deeper in his word and then seem to fail when you're so zealous about the gospel? Well, as I've already alluded to, one of the things that we learn from the totality of scriptures is that God wants to root out from you self-reliance. He wants to root out pride. He wants you to recognize that in all things, whether it's your difficult job situation, your family struggles, some other failures or burden, even sharing the gospel, that you must depend upon him and he will allow you to fail. But he loves to renew and re-enable you. And if you found that you respond with despair or frustration in these moments instead of faith, remember Paul. Remember his example from Acts chapter 9. If you understand that God may be preparing you through suffering, through quiet times, then you can have the faith that he has the plan and purpose even when there seem, like I said, to be few opportunities. Three years in Arabia, Damascus, eight to ten years in Tarsus. Maybe. You may feel impatient unused, ineffective, frustrated about how much time has gone by, how little you've accomplished for the kingdom. But do not undervalue the times that God takes you out of the mainstream and, and off of the front stage. But also don't sit idly by. This is not a time to waste. God expects you, even if you're not on the front line of battle, to be developing as a soldier, to be reading his word, to be excelling in prayer, to be worshiping with the saints, to be perfecting the graces and disciplines of God. He has prepared you. That's the important thing. He's prepared you for works before the foundation of the world. And that tells me the last thing. We serve an amazing God. A God whose purposes were set before even human history began. And you had a part in that. You have a part in that. I can't fathom that. You have a role to play in a plan that spans all of human history, you. So pray for what God may be preparing you for. Grow in maturity in Christ. Wait upon the Lord and be faithful. Let's pray.
Father, you are a gracious God who does love us, who has plans for us, who knows every hair on our heads, who knows our beginning and our end, knows how frail and how weak we are, and yet, Lord, you have desired to abide in and with us. You have desired to use us as your chosen instruments. You sharpen, you refine us, you prepare us, and then you send us out. But Lord, the difficult times that lie ahead require that we learn important lessons. We have to learn humility. We have to learn trust and dependence upon you and upon others in the body of Christ. And so, Lord, I pray that these lessons that Paul learned and that we know to be true from the history of your saints... Even our own lives, I pray that we would remember these, that we would be still, that we would wait patiently for what you're doing through us, but Lord, that we would not be idle. Father, I'm excited about what you're going to do even in the rest of my life. I'm excited about what you will do in the lives of the people of this body. Lord, may they be excited as well. Seek your face in Jesus' name, amen.